From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast, where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. Before I welcome my guest today, let me briefly mention three of the books that I've recently read. First, there's The Hare with Amber Eyes, A Family's Century of Art and Loss, by Edmund DeWall. I almost gave up on this one. There's a complicated, winding start, but it soon becomes a compelling story of generations of a family of industrialists, bankers, artists, and poets, living, immensely prospering, and then, through necessity, surviving through extraordinarily challenging times. This is the voyage of the Efrusi family, a pan-European Jewish dynasty of grain brokers and bankers from Odessa on the Black Sea. Through Paris, Vienna, Japan, and England, their colossal financial success, their ruin at the hands of the Nazis, despite their assimilation, their stolen and lost artwork and other objects, some of which are later found and some of which are currently on exhibit at the Jewish Museum in New York. A really fascinating story of the author's forebears. Second, and quite different, is Lincoln Highway by Immortals. This was a quick 500-plus page read, a page-turner with well-drawn major and minor characters and dialogue. Exuberance, joy rides, trains and cars, chase scenes in Nebraska, New York City, Westchester, and the Adirondacks, all mixed with a touch of anxiety. This was a fun and a good read, although not the towering achievement of Toll's last book, A Gentleman in Moscow, which was a very tough act to follow. Finally, my brother Lewis sent to me and to our brother Steve a book with the most off-putting title imaginable. It's called People Love Dead Jews by author Dara Horn. Horn has noted that the title is not meant to suggest that people want Jews to die, but rather that the reverence paid to Jews who have died in the Holocaust, synagogue shootings, and otherwise is way out of proportion to the regard otherwise paid to the Jewish community. The first chapter begins with the words, people love dead Jews, living Jews, not so much. This is a serious, thoughtful, and important book, and there's a lot to absorb and reflect on. I just finished, and I'm looking forward to discussing with my brothers. This is my last podcast episode for 2021. My number one recommendation of the many great books I read this year is Hemnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Number two is A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. And among my other top reads this year is the frightening Anne Applebaum book, Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lure of Authoritarianism. And then there's Tolstoy's War and Peace, also very highly recommended. It's the very definition of a classic and an epic one at that. Okay, now for our guest today. When we met last summer, I learned that Trin Trong and her mother had come to the United States from Vietnam about 20 years ago. And during what we in the U.S. refer to as the Vietnam War, her grandfather had worked for the governments of the Republic of Vietnam and the United States doing intelligent work, mainly mapping the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and that the rest of her family was engaged during the war years in democratic activism in the country. After Saigon fell in 1975, 
Trin's grandparents and eight of their children, with the exception of Trin's mother, who was one year old, were sent to re-education labor camps for nine years to atone for their wartime allegiances. Trin herself is a longtime refugee activist in the United States and a recent graduate of Oxford in England with a master's degree in refugee and forced migration studies. When I met Trin, we had what to me is an inevitable discussion of books. As I was intrigued by her background, I asked Trin if there was a book she might like to discuss with me on the podcast. Trin said that she had started reading The Sympathizer by Viet Than Wen several times, and that she would get through it this fall and then talk with me. The Sympathizer is a beautifully written, dark and tragic novel set during and after the war in Vietnam. The unnamed narrator is a Western-educated Vietnamese. While he is working for the CIA in Saigon and serving as aide-de-camp to a South Vietnamese general, he is also a spy for the North, secretly sending intelligence to the insurgents. And his spying continues as he joins Vietnamese refugees in America after the war. Adding to the difficulties for our narrator, his boyhood friends are soldiers fighting for the South. The narrator is torn apart by his conflicting sympathies. Now, sometime in the late 1970s, the narrator is in a communist prison addressing an interrogator who demands that he explains his activities among the enemy. The book is ultimately an indictment of the French, the Americans, and the Vietnamese themselves. As I got into the book, I thought I could begin to understand how difficult it might have been for Trin to get through it. Trin, I'm so glad we met this summer that you dove back into The Sympathizer to discuss it with me. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Howard. The Sympathizer begins in April 1975 as U.S. Armed Forces and personnel are withdrawing from Vietnam. The narrator says it was a month that meant everything to all of the people in our small part of the world and nothing to most people in the rest of the world. The beginning of the story largely revolves around Vietnamese who worked for the Americans and who feared reprisals from the Viet Cong after the American withdrawal. Many desperately tried to get out of the country. A senior American official said, even God and Noah couldn't save everyone, or wouldn't anyway. The narrator recalls the radio chatter at the time of the American withdrawal and as the Viet Cong were closing in. Help me, I'm a translator. We have 70 translators at this address. Get us out. Help me, we have 500 people at this compound. Get us out. Help me, we have 200 at logistics. Get us out. Help me, we have 100 at the CIA hotel. Get us out. Guess what, the narrator says. None of these people got out. The parallels between the end of the American presence in Vietnam in 1975 and the recent end of the American presence in Afghanistan are astounding. Trin, can you tell me a little bit more about your family's history in Vietnam, how the U.S. withdrawal impacted your family, and what you saw in The Sympathizer that resonated with you? Yeah, thanks for that question, Howard. I've been thinking about this a lot in the past few months, especially as the United States has withdrawn from Afghanistan. I think naturally a lot of people likened the withdrawal to the fall of Saigon. And these were people who were Vietnamese, former refugees, but just other people who worked in the military. And there are also people who were saying, you know, don't draw historical parallels where they don't exist. But um, as someone who has devoted my adult life to 
understanding a history that was never taught to me at home out of trauma, out of fear, out of, you know, like intentional forgetting. I think that it was a really, a really appropriate analogy. And I think the chaos that's depicted in the book is exactly what happened. So my family, they were quite high up in the South Vietnamese regime. People knew who they were. And so they were priorities for um, being, being airlifted out of South Vietnam at government HQ, what is now known today as Independence Palace, that, you know, it was renamed that after um, the war ended and the, and the communists reunif- reunified the country. And Saigon is Ho Chi Minh City. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's less fraught than some might think in that I think colloquially everyone calls it Saigon. But if you're, you know, doing formal business or things like that, people would say Ho Chi Minh City. But you can say Saigon there and no one's going to correct you. And it's just shorter. <laughs> yes, it is. So my my family, um, we were supposed to be airlifted out of South Vietnam. Um, the plan was everyone was going to meet on the roof and get airlifted out with helicopters. And my family was there waiting But unfortunately, one of my uncles was late and my grandfather, the patriarch of the family and the one on whom, you know, our ability to evacuate rested upon, um, he decided not to leave without my uncle. And that, I think, began this long series of misfortunes that, you know, charted this alternative reality. Um, I think in the book, we see a little bit of what happened to those who were able to kind of beat the queue and just immediately get out of there and get welcomes when the United States had a lot of capacity, people who are prioritized, like the general and people who are high up. So reading the book, I was thinking a lot about how my family's like acculturation or adjustment to America would have been easier if they had just gotten out and not have gotten so delayed uh, in the camps. And I mean, even today. When your parents, your family got out, your mom and you got out many years after your, the rest of the family got out. Yeah. So Saigon Falls in 1975, and my family, with the exception of my mom, as you stated, is sent to camps for nine years. So that puts us in the mid-1980s. And my grandparents, by that point, had lost any faith in government and authority because they understood the level of corruption and deceit that had occurred during the war to them personally and still was rife in society. And I think the book does a really good job at illustrating this. Just, you know, the narrator is a double agent. There are bribes. People are killing each other for arbitrary reasons. People are feeding each other bad intel. And so my my grandparents didn't believe that they could get resettled. And I think the real the specific program through which my grandfather and our family came to America originally was through this program that was for people who had spent time in reeducation camps. Um, And this was an extension of other programs that immediately began to get people off the ground in the same way that we've just mass evacuated a lot of Afghans to different countries and also to what they're calling lily pads or, you know, safe zones still um, in in the Middle East. So my my grandparents came over after they had heard from a friend in California that it was safe to do so. So they were so distrustful that they waited for him to send letters to say, like, actually, this isn't a scam and you can come to America and there is no more war here and there's no one watching us and things like that. So my my parent my grandparents initiated the process. It took them years and years and years, multiple interviews, because it's it's such a rigorous process. They have to vet your identity. They have to vet your story. They're asking friends of friends. This um, is the U.S. vetting. Yes, this is a U.S. vetting. And um, it wasn't until 1994 that my grandparents and one uncle arrived in upstate New York in Utica, where we still live to this day. And 
Um, before we started the podcast, I, I talked a little bit about, you know, the different reasons why people move and how it intersects with economic and personal and social reasons. And fast forward to 2001, my mother had me. I was only three years old. She had just left a really abusive marriage. This is in Vietnam. In Vietnam, in Saigon, where I was born. And, you know, she was thinking about the future that I would have in the country where my family is blacklisted and cannot join the Communist Party, which one has to do to really advance and, you know, to get to get status in society. And so she consulted with my grandfather and he agreed, you know, like there wasn't really a respectable and dignified future in Vietnam for a young divorced woman with a child who was living out on her own. And so he said, you know, you have this opportunity through me and through like the persecution that our family faces in Vietnam to make a refugee claim that is bolstered by the principle of family reunification, uh, which exists. And it's, I would argue, the primary thing that drives our resettlement system here in the United States to come to this country for, you know, this vague idea of a better life. And so in 2001, my mom and I, we packed one suitcase and we flew from Ho Chi Minh City to I think somewhere in Korea, if I'm not mistaken. And then we had a layover there and then flew to to upstate New York. And, you know, that was 20 years ago and the rest is kind of history. And so talk about, uh, this is a bit of a divergence, but talk about Utica. So I had never known of Utica as a refugee haven uh, and it has been for many years, I gather. So why Utica? So the story of resettlement in Utica is a really um, precarious one in that it is a story of how one person with a strong conviction can go on to make a really big difference by organizing people to act. So in 1979, this woman named Roberta Douglas, who now lives in Connecticut, was watching TV and she was seeing a lot of mixed race Amerasian children, as as we tend to call them, um, who were left behind after America had left. And, you know, a lot of these children were orphans if, you know, their parents were dead and their living relatives were still in the United States or, you know, and also a lot of them were, were stigmatized. So no one wanted them. I mean, people literally called them boy which means the dust of the earth or the dust of life. And they were a very material reminder of all the horrible things that had happened in our country for, you know, the past few decades. And she saw a report about how they were being abused and asked herself as, um, you know, a religious person, how she could help. So I believe she was Presbyterian. She went to her congregation and basically got on the, the pulpit and asked if her her community members would sponsor these children and potentially some of their family members to come over to the United States to do this good thing to prevent them from being persecuted and discriminated. And she did the same thing in other um, congregations. And she did this work across faiths. And so the government at that time was scrambling to builds some type of like resettlement program. And I think the thing that people don't realize is that our refugee resettlement system in the U.S. is very new. So it was kind of built in the air as the Southeast Asian refugee crisis was unfolding. Um, I think the decision to evacuate so many people was made before we had any system. And so back then, it largely operated on a sponsorship model where local community members like this could get together and say, hey, we will be responsible for 60 refugees and we have 20 households that will take three of them each. Um, and, and so that's how it began in upstate New York. And originally, from what I've been told, the State Department had originally cleared Utica as a kind of a staging ground. People were supposed to go elsewhere. And it's logistically really difficult to transport a lot of people into new lives. And so I think what happened was that people just stayed. 
And so it began with the Vietnamese. And since 1979, thousands and thousands of people have come to Utica from different conflicts around the world, from Rwanda, from Bosnia, you know, from um, ethnic conflict in Myanmar, from Sudan, South Sudan. And we're currently getting, you know, Afghan evacuees and refugees. And resettlement has been such a success story in Utica in that uh, the community is now like very multicultural. I think people are really happy to have refugees there. Um, they've really revitalized our local communities culturally, economically, socially. And the population infusion that resulted from the resettlement turned around a declining Rust Belt city. Yeah, it's um, a great story. That's a great story. In the book, there's a reference to families who came out of Vietnam being divvied up and parceled out. Uh, families couldn't stay together. Is that your experience as well? So my experience was not like that. Um, and you have to think that I, I arrived 20 years after, oh, you know, the true. first onset. Yeah. And so the systems are just much smoother now. They, people, the, the systems are there. People know what they're doing. That, so family separation da did happen um, at the beginning of the resettlement of Southeast Asians. And it was more of a logistical constraint in that, like I mentioned, if one host could only take two people and the family had six children, then those children were going to be split up from each other and from their parents. And the book is, I think, partially autobiographical in that Viet Thanh right. Nguyen was separated from his parents when he originally resettled in the United States. Um, and I don't remember where, but unfortunately that did happen. And I think the positive news is that most of those children and families were able to reunite because people were keeping track of, of where they were. But of course, it's undeniable that that definitely caused trauma and separation anxiety. I'm sure. Someone in the book refers to um, leaving Vietnam and says, for a human being, the greatest suffering comes from losing his country. Now, you were very young when you left, but uh, do you find in your family a, a yearning to go back? Or again, in the book, the, the, one of the military officers uh, talks about a yearning for recognition and remembrance from a country that no longer exists. I think my grandfather definitely experienced this. He, I mean, after spending nine years in a, a labor camp and to see the country that you fought for totally disintegrate before your eyes, I can't imagine what that's like. And I think he was still very nationalistic for South Vietnam when I, when I was growing up. And he was educated at a French lycée and, you know, was quite high up. So that was his community. That was all that he knew. And I feel like when a, a purpose like that so ardently governs your life for so long, I, I don't know how you come back from that. And I know that in a lot of these um, diasporic towns like, you know, Little Saigon in California and in other places, the older generation who, you know, would be like my grandfather's age, they still wave the South Vietnamese flag. Some of them call April the month that Saigon fell Black April. And so I think a, a lot of them still, you know, really believe in the project of South Vietnam. And peculiarly, in the 2010s, a few groups emerged and tried to establish governments in exile. Um, so there was like a Vietnamese government in exile. And then there was a third Republic of Vietnam. And the Department of State actually had to send the people responsible for these, I don't even know what to call them, these like quasi sovereign government entities, like the equivalent of like a cease and desist letter, because, you know, they were at risk of, of literally being treasonous, even though that really wasn't their intention. And a few of these people, I think, ended up in jail back when back in Vietnam, when they went to visit because of these types of activities that they were doing in the United States. So I think it's a very interesting study of for international law, but it also just goes to show how palpable this longing is. 
In terms of my mom and I, I mean, I always say that I'm a granddaughter of the war. And I think the thing that is really odd about my life is that most people my age are second generation Americans. They were born here. They really didn't have to think about their condition as refugees because they weren't refugees and because their parents were the ones who really faced that struggle of growing up in generational poverty and all these things. But for me, it still feels weirdly like it was yesterday in that like I understand my life as a direct consequence of this migration that was the direct consequence of this war, even though it was half a century ago. And I don't know, I think about my mom a lot and I think about the fact that she had a whole entire life back in Vietnam that like, sure, was definitely colored and molded by war, but there was also an after to that. And so when I talk about people migrating for different reasons, I always think about my mom because we have this conception that all refugees are people who move were fleeing napalm and bombs and these things. And yes, a lot of them are, but some people did enjoy their lives back in Vietnam. And I I think my mom did. Um, Last year, we had a family reunion in Vietnam and it was the, the first time in 10 years that my mom had returned. And I had never seen her happier in my life. And it, you know, makes me sad to think to this day that because of like language reasons and cultural reasons, she just couldn't be her full whole self ever really in this country. It, it really hurts me. And I think as I get older, I'm going to find ways to make sure that she goes back enough and that, you know, she can maintain that connection to Vietnam and to here. I've been going back to Vietnam every Christmas for about the past six years because I've been lucky enough to get research grants and fellowships that supported that. And so I've seen how the country has changed But I think when you leave, like she did, you know, in your early 20s, the way that your country was is how it is cemented in your mind. So it was really jarring for her to go to Vietnam and to see that they've really modernized and that you can get almost everything that you can get here in terms of luxury goods and necessities there as well. So I don't know. I feel like maybe for someone of her age and of her generation and of her memories, it's a lot of unfinished business. But for me, it's odd. Because, you know, I don't want to say that like cliche diasporic thing of like being between two countries, but I'm going to say it. And so I always feel like I'm chasing the memory of a thing that like I never really knew. I was going to say, I know what you mean. I'm not sure either of us knows fully, but that that resonates. There's another observation made in the book. I don't recall if it's the narrator or just uh, the the text, every conversation among the exiles about Saigon eventually became a conversation about the fall of Saigon and the fate of those left behind. That sounds like a reflection your grandfather would have. I think so. So my grandfather died in 2004 and he died of lung cancer because he was a smoker all of his life. And I've always thought, you know, like life is just so ironic that he had gone through so much and had survived so much only to get taken out by bad lungs. And I don't know, like I, he wasn't involved in political activities at all when we moved to the United States. And I think part of that was that he was afraid of doing the wrong thing and slipping up. But I think part of me just thinks that he was just so tired um, to suffer the loss of a homeland like that, but also like an ideological loss and a tactical loss, you know, in military terms, he was tired. So when I was growing up, he was very strict with me and did a lot of tutoring and really forced me to just study beyond the physical capabilities of like, you know, a a six, seven, eight year old. And he slept a lot and he honestly kind of avoided other Vietnamese people and just lived like, I I would say he lived a very quiet existence in the United States. That's interesting. Yeah. What you said about refugees, Vietnamese refugees in the U.S. establishing third republics and what have you, it sounds very much like the story in The Sympathizer, uh, or, or I'm going to say a watered down version because you haven't described anybody going back armed or training for an armed invasion. Maybe you saw that. That's happened. 
there was a there was a group that that did that. And um, I did research into that when I was at Oxford, because one of the units that um, we had was raising the empirical question of can diaspora folks have an effect on politics back home and like what should their obligations be? And there have been some groups that did exactly what happened in the book was, you know, go back and try to foment another another war. And I mean, that, that just goes to show how how ruthless people are and like how strong the force of an idea can be. I think the book is particularly interesting to me because I have been a longtime admirer of Viet Thanh Nguyen and all of his ventures. Um, he is a columnist for the New York Times opinion column, actually has a really great column on Thanksgiving and the complicated auspices of gratitude. And his first academic book, I read at my junior year of college, uh, it's called Nothing Ever Dies. And it's about uh, memorialization and how we can ethically remember and how we can ethically forget. And he scrutinizes industries of memory, Hollywood, and talks about things like Apocalypse Now and, you know, the Vietnam War Memorial, which peculiarly only has the name of American soldiers who fought in the war and not their South Vietnamese comrades. Um, and I've always thought that was kind of weird to have a memorial for a war that technically wasn't even yours and to erase the people for whom it was actually fought. So I was reading this book and like knowing about his personal story, as I mentioned, him being separated from his family, his academic, hardcore academic theoretical work. Like this book definitely was an outgrowth of all those things. And I also know that he has really strong opinions about the way that materials have been produced about the Vietnam War that have totally ignored the Vietnamese perspective. And this is also a really large criticism that I've had. And I digress, but I, I would say that that's really changing. And this book is an example of it. But the book was very meta. Um, I was reading it and the scene about the film and like the negligent director. Well, the film that is really um, modeled on Apocalypse Now. Right. And so it's definitely a satirical work. And it's fascinating because it seems like he is writing this book for multiple audiences and is such a master that if you have no idea about Vietnamese history, you can pick up this book and learn a little bit about it and find the book engaging and interesting. But if like me, you've spent the last six years of your life delving into Vietnamese history and also, you know, maybe other things like philosophy or anthropology, you'll also find bits in there that like speak to your expertise. And you're like, wow, like this man is really doing the most and he's getting away with it and he's doing a great job. That's phenomenal. So you've referred to refugees several times. I don't know if we've referred to immigrants. How do you distinguish immigrants and refugees? And I ask in the context that I've always thought of my grandparents as immigrants from Romania. But as I read the book and as I've read about the book uh, and about your work, I thought perhaps they should have been characterized or I should think of them as refugees. How, how do you distinguish? So this is, I think, one of the hottest questions that public opinion, the law, scholars and academics have been grappling with for years. And I think more recently, as climate change afflicts our globe and we think about what it means when a government fails and people leave in mass and cross a border, th this question is a tough one. And there are two answers to this question. So a refugee legally, as the law understands it now, is someone who, one, has crossed a border, two, is persecuted, and three, is persecuted on the basis of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership of a particular social group. So those three elements have to line up. They're very specific. And um, as the definition has been interpreted now, if you're someone just generally fleeing generalized violence or like generalized failure of your government, so if your government is just so defunct that it there, there are food shortages and famine and you've crossed the border because of that, you are not a refugee because the argument is that you're not being individually persecuted. Everyone else in your country is facing those conditions. And 
I think it's complicated because people flee for different reasons and the definition of what a refugee is is quite flexible. And it's, the key is in membership of a particular social group. So um, some scholars have been pushing the forefront of that to make sure that gender-based violence and gender-based persecution is included in the definition. So for example, if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, um, the argument would be, well, that is a social group that exists in the society and people are arbitrarily persecuting you based on that. And so because of your membership in that group, like that is the cause of your persecution and therefore you should be protected. And an immigrant as classically understood is someone who leaves their country and implicit in that definition is an element of choice. But like I said, like sometimes it's not always clear. Like for example, right now, if you are a member of an ethnic minority group that's being persecuted in in Myanmar, but you're also, you know, a PhD and you get a Fulbright grant and you leave to go to the United States, technically you'd be an immigrant, like a, you know, a, a high skilled immigrant coming to the United States to study. But you're also leaving because there's a tangible real reality that if you stay there, you could be killed or imprisoned or things like that. And so, you know, I've talked to a lot of immigrants that you know, vaguely say, like, I've come to this country for a better life. And I actually kind of hate that term because it's very general and it's very specific. And a better life um, could mean a lot of things. It can mean more economic opportunity. It can mean not getting killed. It can mean freedom of speech. And I'm an advocate of retiring that term because I think that when we say better life, it allows people who are against migration and immigration to just say like, oh, you know, a better life just means economic opportunity. But it's so many more things than that. It's gender-based violence, it's discrimination, it's other things. So um, if you're listening to this and you're an immigrant or a refugee and you or your parents have come here for a better life or your grandparents, um, have a think about what that tangibly meant. Interesting. So you, before you went to Oxford, you were at Yale uh, what, what were your studies at Yale? So I studied political science um, when I was at Yale with a focus on political theory, political philosophy. And I was also in the undergraduate human rights program at Yale Law School. So how are you putting your Yale and Oxford degrees to work? What, what are you doing now? I now work at a think tank um, and I do research as a research assistant on immigration policy, which also includes refugee policy. That's very exciting. That's great. What what are you reading that you would recommend for anyone who wants to further understand what we've just talked about? I think that um, the second part to thinking about refugees is thinking post-flight, post-integration, post-resettlement, and raising the question of, hmm, how might refugees actually experience their transition to a different country? And how are they perceived by other people and what should we reasonably expect from them and what should they reasonably expect from themselves? And I actually just finished up a book club that met for three weekends and together we read Dina Nayeri's book, The Ungrateful Refugees. And I think the the subtext to that is like what immigrants don't tell you. And um, she moved from Iran um, as a refugee and eventually ended up in the United States. And the book is a reflection not only on her own stories, but on other migration refugee stories that she encountered um, in her time in the field, working with other displaced people. And the thing that I like the most about the book is probably the chapter on gratitude and assimilation. And I think her critique of the status quo is in the title, like the ungrateful refugee. Like if you heard that, I think the original reaction would be like, oh, refugees should be so grateful to us. Like we gave them a place um, to stay. They should be grateful that they've survived, that they've got out. And I think a problem is that people don't let refugees be people. Um, we're often expected to do this, expected to do that, you know, expected to follow the law and like be perfect and be exceptional and um, to have illustrious careers. 
and we're not allowed to be mediocre. And it always feels really high stakes in that. I mean, think of really prominent refugees, right? You think of Malala Yousafzai, who was shot in the head and then went to promote girls' education and was also at Oxford. You think of um, the Syrian woman who was on the Olympic team for refugees, who, when her dinghy started sinking, she swam and dragged the boat for miles and miles, saving all the people on board. You know, you think of things like, oh, Einstein was refugee. And I think those narratives are really important for getting people to realize that these people can also be exceptional. But the bottom line is that like refugees are are also just people. Um, and when we bring a refugee to America, um, after a year, they get a green card and they can keep renewing that green card unless, you know, something happens that disrupts their status, like they commit a crime and it jeopardizes their standing, which is, you know, another rabbit hole and what I do research on. But, you know, they become just like everyone else who has permanent residency here. And, you know, we think about citizens and we think of what we expect of them. And to be honest with you, it's really not much. Um <laughs> citizens, uh, and to borrow a term from a scholar I really admire, Eilat Shakar, citizens have won the birthright lottery. They were born on the right side of the border and nothing extra is expected of them, but everything is given and granted to them. And so The Ungrateful Refugee by Dida Nayeri makes us think about that and it makes us think about assimilation. And it, you know, it, I I think the big takeaway is that when people move to a foreign country, it changes them. And this is also a theme that occurs in The Sympathizer. When you move to a new place, it changes you. And also, I think we have to be open to the ways that strangers can come into our lands and also change us. And I'm in the middle of like a few other books I'm reading, like Braiding Sweetgrass, which is about like Native American knowledge bases and like environmental practices. And it was written by a SUNY ESF professor. And it's like widely held as like the Native American ecology book. And then also um, there's this new book called The Right to Sex, which is written by Amia Srinivasan, who is like the youngest professor to hold this one prestigious post at Oxford. And she like tested into All Souls College when she was like 20 years old, Rhodes Scholar. And she is thinking about, you know, with these movements for like inclusivity and like us trying to be really equal in how we treat other people, she's raising the question of like, is that a reasonable expectation we have? Can we have that expectation too for our desires? Um, which I think is an important question because I think my generation thinks a lot about like, oh, like, you know, like, for example, I think a lot of white men my age, like fetishize Asian women. And so, you know, there are a lot of hairy questions where it's like, is that a preference or is that like racist? Is that like, okay, is it not okay? Also, like, what if you're just not attracted to like one type of person? Like, should you go out of your way to make sure that you like desire people on like an equal opportunity basis? And then there are really provocative essays in there about like, is it okay for like professors to sleep with students? And like, how is that related to the feminist movements that have fought for these like anti-harassment policies? Because then it's really anti-feminist to be like, okay, well, this grown adult woman who's a graduate student can't sleep with her advisor, even though she's a grown adult, right? So she's asking these really important questions. And the book, the name of the book, The Right to Sex, she wrote the essay that was published in the London Review of Books after Elliot Rogers in California killed a bunch of fraternity girls because he felt that they he would never have a partner like that and felt inferior because he was mixed race, very much like the, the narrator of The Sympathizer. Also, um, you might like this book. I mean, it continues with like the communist theme, but it's called Free, Growing Up at the End of History. And it's by this political theorist, lawyer, who teaches at the London School of Economics named Leah Yippie. And it's a like a personal autobiography 
of about growing up in Stalinist Albania. Oh, oh. Yeah. And it, it reads really, really well. And, you know, she's also thinking about the ideological wars in the cold war. And her conclusion is that she's on neither side. So I just started that, but I'm really determined to get through it. <laughs> You've yeah. got a lot to get through. I, I do. And then I have to read all these books for work and it's uh, great. That's yeah. Great. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That was terrific. Yeah. I hope we'll still find a way to like be in touch. Oh, absolutely. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, which also includes links to the books and other resources we referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, and my bookmark. Melanie provides overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse. 20-month-old Jake, now walking, running, and talking up a storm, continues to encourage the podcast, as does Jake's baby cousin Francesca, now nine months old, and another great source of inspiration for us all. Thanks to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast, and thanks as well to A.J. Falari, who is working with me on the editing. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookroomsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time. Bye.